Well, let's go to our Heavenly Father together. Would you bow with me? Oh, our great God, you are so good to us. You give us Jesus, you gave us Jesus, and you give him afresh to us each day. Lord, we thank you for loving us with grace, not because we deserve it, but just because you're good. And you come to us every day as we wake, as we, we go through our day, and you give us your loyal love that's not dependent on our ability to follow you well. It's just based on your heart of love. Thank you that we can come into your holy presence individually and together. Thank you that you can hear our confession, Lord, our agreement with you that we're broken, that we're sinful, that we're in such need of you. As we sang, only Jesus. Lord, you know we're so drawn to everything else to fill our empty spaces in our hearts. And we just want to call ourselves back to the truth that only, only Jesus is enough. And Jesus is enough. So we thank you for him. We thank you for your spirit that's always present to comfort and strengthen and teach and guide us. And we come to you this morning with our petitions. Lord, unspoken but you know, we do pray together for Marilyn Kellogg's family, for the Miller family. Be with them, comfort them, direct them, to direct their gaze to you. We pray for our Mexico team, Lord, for the youth and others who are there. Strengthen them, give them energy and hearts and connections to the family that they're serving there as they build a home. Make them a blessing and be a blessing to them and through them. And Lord, we, we can't help but pray for Ukraine this morning. Lord, we just ache for the loss of life, for the horrible things happening there. We ask, Lord, that you would be present in ways we can, can't even imagine, but to comfort and guide and provide, raise up people to provide and care. And we pray you'd bring peace soon. Lord, we pray for Brian this morning as he brings your word to us in a few minutes that you would encourage him as he speaks, give him freedom to speak to us, to share your word with us. And we give you back this day that you've made. Help us to follow in your steps today and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray now that the meditations of my heart and thoughts and our words together would be anointed by your Holy Spirit to rejuvenate hearts, to cause us to flourish and give us a vision of the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the title of my message is The Cost and Crowning Joy of Hesed Love. Hesed Love has been the theme of the Book of Ruth. 
And to introduce our text this morning, I chose a painting by my friend Kristen Chen, who's a former PBCer. She now lives in Durango, Colorado. And she wrote about this piece, that this piece is about the love of God as shown through the ordinary events with people, past weeks, a reunion with a best friend, a wedding, a daughter's birthday, a friend helping me in a big way when I needed her, and the ongoing conversation woven through the decades about this great love that is a mystery, flows in us, through us, to be poured out as a fountain. This is that embrace. I thought that was a wonderful image to uh, look at this chapter of Ruth. So similarly, the book of Ruth draws us into the very heart of God, his compassion and hesed love that takes root in two women who are teetering on the edge of survival. When lives are at stake, hesed love becomes bold and creative and will take risks that seem, may seem appropriate in another context, but in so doing, bring about a remarkable transformation of a community and a radical new ways of how we relate one to another that opens the door to a future that outlives time. Well, last week the transformation was highlighted by the phrase, my daughter, which occurred five times in the text. And in the book of Judges, the phrase occurs twice. First, my daughter is the one given in marriage by her father as a trophy for military exploits. And second, to our horror, my daughter is the one sacrificed because of a father's stupid vow. Well, in the book of Ruth, these disparaging connotations are lifted out of the muck and mire and transformed by Ruth's hesed acts of love. On the lips of Naomi and Boaz, the phrase identifies Ruth, the Moabite, as a beloved and true daughter of Israel. And the high point comes when Ruth confronts Boaz in the middle of the night with a marriage proposal and a truckload of family responsibilities he never dreamed of. But rather than taking offense or becoming defensive, Boaz listens and he responds to her. And now my daughter, do not fear. All that you say I will do for all my fellow townspeople, that's the people of the gate, know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz calls her an Ashit Hayil, a noble and competent woman, raising Ruth's status to that of his own. His words are not empty platitudes. Contrary to his patriarchal bias, he actually believes Ruth his as equal, a noble woman whose courage and commitment is highly praised among the leading citizens of Bethlehem. And as a prominent man in Bethlehem, he has no problem embracing her ideas and throwing his full weight behind her initiatives, which are not motivated by self-interest, but for the purpose of saving lives. This is the holy alliance galvanized for the holy and courageous work of redemption. Redemption occurs 20 times in chapter three and four. It is the grand theme of this chapter, and it's really the central theme of the book. Redemption is the crowning joy of Hesed love. This is what makes Hesed love so attractive and contagious. It's the call to join the Lord's army in the dangerous yet most rewarding work on the planet. It's the works that makes us most gloriously human because it is divine. 
So as we turn the page to chapter 4, we find Boaz up at the crack of dawn, making way to the city gate, tearing up his to-do list, and he's driven by the weight and privilege of this new agenda for the day. Ruth and Naomi's fate now rests entirely on his initiative, his legal craft and skill, as he presents their case to her next of kin. You know, in our spiritual journey, there's times when we have to stop our initiatives and just let go and turn everything over to God for the outcome. And you hear those words of Jesus on the cross, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's what's happening in this text. We come to verse one. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, passing by is the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken. And he said, turn aside, sit down here, Poloni Almoni. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men from the town elders and said, sit down here, and they sat down. So the city gate was not only a place of entry into the city, it was the seat of commercial and business transactions, and more importantly, where justice was to be established. So no sooner had Boaz taken his seat that he looks up and he sees Naomi's kinsman passing by. And Boaz's authority is evident by his abrupt command and instant obedience of Poloni Almoni. Now that's not his real name, but it's a rhyming parody similar to Joe Schmo or so-and-so. And because he will refuse to restore the name of the dead, the narrator refuses to memorialize his name and he drops off the page of salvation history. So once he has Mr. No Name in his seat, Boaz takes great care to ensure he has a proper legal form to witness and notarize the proceedings. And the elders respond to Boaz's command with the same unquestioning obedience as Naomi's kinsman. And you get the sense here that Boaz exercises incredible influence within the community, which he is gonna leverage to accomplish good without being hindered by any possible objections over legal technicalities. To any elders in the audience, this is gonna be a very short elders meeting. Then he said to the Redeemer, the portion of the field that belonged to our brother, to Elimelech, Naomi has put it up for sale, the one who returned from the field of Boab. So once everyone's seated, Boaz introduces the issue at hand with no formal introduction. He chooses his words very carefully, and he reveals that Naomi is selling the rights to her inheritance. Now the background of this is that the promised land ultimately belonged to God, but it was subdivided and parceled out permanently by tribe and family, and the proprietary rights to the land were vested in the clan, with individuals only holding the right of possession and the profits from its use. So when a family property goes up for sale, the nearest kinsman has the responsibility to redeem it and to buy it back for the clan. So as Boaz mentions Naomi, that brings up a slight complication for the sale because the cost involved is gonna be a little more because whoever buys the field will have to care for the widow until she dies. 
But that's a minor expense compared to the potential gain if Mr. So-and-so secures Elimelech's property. So before Mr. No-Name has a chance to ponder the implications involved, Boaz turns up the heat in verse 4. As for me, I thought I should alert you, saying, acquire before those sitting here and before the elders of my people, if you would redeem, then redeem. But if you will not redeem, tell me so that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem. Well, that little phrase, I will alert you, uh, is literally, I were going to uncover your ear. And that's usually used to indicate that the speaker's in a position to disclose information that could not come from any other source. And it, that information comes in that final little phrase at the end, I am after you. So Boaz is saying, I'm right in line behind you, and I got my checkbook in hand to close the deal. And then he relentlessly presses him, repeating this verb of redeem, which in Hebrew is ga'al, four times. Ga'al, ga'al, ga'al. Take on this honorable task in the presence of this whole community. And Ellen Davis notes that these verbal forms have no direct object. There's no mention of what or who is to be acquired or redeemed, the land or even Ruth, which puts the focus entirely on the subject. The person who will or will not act is the role of the redeemer. So I don't know if you can sense the drama. It's like he's like a courtroom attorney with this rhetoric, enlisting the crowd in the, in the beauty of redemption and luring Mr. No-Name to step into the spotlight and commit himself to this honorable task for the sake of a widow before this esteemed assembly. So... Mr. No-Name steps up to the plate, right on cue, accepts the task. Unfortunately, he is clueless that Boaz is about to use a bait-and-switch ploy that will cost this would-be redeemer his reputation. Verse 5. And Boaz said, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, <clears throat> Ruth the Moabite, the wife of the dead you acquire in order to raise up the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now this is a bold and unprecedented move. Carolyn James, whose commentary I found just stellar, writes, in the eyes of the culture and of the men in Elimelech's family, Naomi is the widow of the deceased. The property under question belonged to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. The Leveret law applied to Naomi, Elimelech's widow. But that is no longer relevant because she's past the childbearing age. Boaz and Mr. No-Name could walk away with a clear conscience, for they were not Elimelech's brother, and Naomi's never going to get pregnant. But Boaz has gone to school with Ruth. And she taught him how to press the envelope when it came to gleaning. We don't measure how large the corners are. We just feed the family. And so he, learning to go beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, and the spirit of the law says, save the family, and moves you to find a way to do the impossible. And Boaz, 
has discovered a way to raise the dead. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite, whose reputation you all know, with fearless determination, he declares his commitment to raise up the name of the dead by marrying Ruth. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to hear the roar of the applause, suffocating any possibility of legalistic rebuttal over the details of the law. And there is poor Mr. No Name, who now has to count the cost after agreeing to redeem. I picture him a little bit like Tevya on Fiddler on the Roof here, pondering in his mind. It's thinking, well, it's likely that Ruth, who's been barren for 10 years, is she'll never conceive, and the land will be mine, free and clear, and that'll more than offset the care of caring for two widows. But on the other hand, is anything too hard for God? He's known to give babies to barren women. If she does conceive, everything I've invested in to remake the land and cultivate the land is gonna hurt child. And in those days, few farmers could afford to support two families. He fears the price tag will ruin him, and he's right. So he says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I spoil my inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem. So he's framed it with this total negativity. So Mr. No Name now views the prospect with some horror, and he emphatically reverses his pleas despite the shame, the decision to relinquish his rights, I think reflects the enormity of the sacrifice Boaz is willing to pay. So here's what Hesed love teaches. Hesed love means the goal in life is not financial security. It's giving security to those who have none. That's what Hesed love does. The goal of our life is not financial security. It's giving security to those that have none, regardless of the cost. Verse seven. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning and exchanging to confirm any legal matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to his fellow, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. And the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. So at this point, the narrator makes a rare aside to offer an explanation to a custom that was not understood when the text was written. So Ellen Davis suggests that we can only guess why the symbol of the sandal figures in the transfer of land. Perhaps the right to walk off the boundaries of the plot as one's own is sort of a symbol. I see the man giving his sandal away and then he's walking with just one foot covered. And so I got to church, I was gonna bring a sandal and hold it up, and then I saw Chris Bunce had a great looking sandal. And I said, can I have that? He says, you want me to walk? Never mind. So uh, I, next service I'll get one. But, uh, so I suspect the sandal served as a notary public, uh, certifying the authenticity of the document of sale, which makes Boaz's title as redeemer irrefutable. Irrefutable. So whenever you see the guy walking with just one sandal, you know it's Boaz has the land. It's his. Verse nine. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have acquired 
Look at the detail he gives. All that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Kilion and Machlon from the hand of Naomi, and also Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Machlon, I have acquired for my own wife to raise up the name of the dead over his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this place. You are witnesses this day. So as Boaz grasps that sandal, he outlines in complete detail the two obligations the near redeemer had ceded to him. The right to all the inheritance of Ruth and to Ruth, the Moabitess, who we now discover was the wife of Machlon. And in the renaming of every family member except Orpah, he is symbolizing the restoration of the clan so that the memory of the deceased may not perish. So it's a new day in Bethlehem. City elders and villagers who deeply moved by what they just saw, they joyfully surround their native son and they give a threefold blessing to this newly engaged couple. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Remember in this book, every prayer and every blessing is answered. Think of that. And though Ruth is not present, she still maintains a very strong presence in everybody's mind. She is well known in the city gate. And foreshadowing Jesus' practice, the community fully embraces a Gentile woman and welcomes her into the family circle. And they do that before anyone knows whether or not the Lord's going to give her a baby. She's been barren for 10 years. So confident are they of God's Hesed love and power, they foresee Ruth taking her place on the podium as one of the leading nation builders alongside Rachel and Leah. At the center of the blessing is a prayer that Boaz continue being who he is with his great strength, his hayil. And then it says, may he be renowned in Bethlehem. That's a play on words. Uh, it really means to proclaim a name in Bethlehem. And so God is saying, or they're saying, may the Lord reward the one who maintained the name of the dead. May he have a name in Bethlehem and be renowned for what he did. Now the blessing concludes connecting Ruth to Tamar, the mother of their tribe. A lot of connections between the two. Both were foreigners who married Israelite men. Both were widowed, Tamar twice. And both exhibit deep familial loyalty by courageously breaking with social protocol to rescue their deceased husbands from extinction. As with Ruth, Tamar's righteous actions had a profound spiritual impact on a man. 
he said to her, you're righteous, I'm not. And she pulled him out of the gutter and transformed him into be the first person who would sacrifice his life for another when he told Joseph, take me instead of Benjamin. Tamar was the mother of Perez, from whom Elimelech, Boaz, and Mr. No-Name descend. And so the community prays that like Tamar, Ruth will produce a family of greatness that measures up to Perez's family. And the genealogy at the end reveals her little, her child Oved, who is three-quarter Gentile, by the way, <laughs> will build the royal house of King David and ultimately the long-awaited Messiah. Now, what does this tell you about Hesed love? What I love about Hesed love is it takes us out of all the distractions and helps us just focus, focus on the need before us with dignity, being thorough, giving it at all, staying in your little place, making your turf holy. And when we do that, it opens the whole door to the future. It opens a door that the future that outlasts time. Who would have thought they're saving the messianic line in Bethlehem? Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. You're thinking, this is supposed to be the grand climax, and he covers this whole thing in it, a verse that... Uh, no, hardly any time spent. So here's the climax, the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. We didn't get to go to the wedding. And then there's an offspring. And in contrast to the 10 years of infertility, she's able to conceive immediately. And so Ruth's conception stands out as one of only two direct statements that are the direct result of God's intervention in the book. And so what this child's birth means, the birth is a providential event of the blessed result of both extraordinary human initiative and the miraculous action of God making the womb fertile. This beautiful balance. Human initiative, divine grace. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So upon the child's birth, the women in the neighborhood pray a benediction upon Naomi, blessing the Lord who's not left Naomi without a kinsman redeemer who retain the family's property and their name. So they also petition to make this child famous in Bethlehem and predict that he will rejuvenate and sustain Naomi in her old age because his mother knows how to love. She doesn't nurture out of duty. She nurtures out of love. And Ovid becomes the beneficiary of all that these two women have gained from all their suffering, all their sacrificed, and all their intimacy with the one true God. That's what Ovid gets. As Naomi's daughter, 
Ruth is worthy of the woman's highest accolades, better than seven sons. Now, you may think that's hyperbole, but they really meant it. Because Naomi was better off with Ruth than a lot of women who gave birth to what the ancient world regarded as the perfect number of sons. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Oved. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ovid means servant. Servant. Well, the book ends in a way we don't expect. Boaz and Ruth are gone. It's a clear indication that this book is something more important than fairy tale romance. It's not about the birth of a family, it's about saving a family. And even after Obed is born, Ruth continues sacrificing for Naomi. She never veers from her vow. She is the female Abraham who left family mother and father and she cleaved to her mother-in-law to a land she did not know, but with no promises. And here like Abraham, who put his son on the altar, Naomi gives up her son. That was her purpose in life, to give Naomi a son. I think I've mentioned this before, but that's what, that's the Hesed love that Jim Foster saw in Romania and why he moved to Romania. <clears throat> he was in a home and all these kids were around and this kid across the street kept talking to the woman inside the house, his mama. And Jim says, what's that? She said, well, they're two sisters and this woman's sister lost her child at birth and she was so grievous, she couldn't get over it, that mama gave her kid to her. And the child grew up next door in the house of the other daughter. That Hesed love was so contagious to Jim, he married a woman and they couldn't even speak the same language. <laughs> and he just made this commitment of Hesed love. And he's been doing that ever since. It's just amazing to me. This is the final and greatest act of Ruth at all, sacrificing that child. And so we don't know what Boaz and Ruth did after that, but you know what they did. They kept doing these great Hesed deeds in their lives. Now for Naomi, she doesn't know that the whole world is counting on that baby she cradles in her arms to fulfill God's promises to redeem his people and to set the whole world right. That's a lot of pressure for a mom. But Carolyn James, she's just brilliant. She observes that Naomi is the female Job. And she didn't learn theology in school. She experienced it through tremendous suffering, bitterness, despair. She went through that dark night of the soul. She spent time at ground zero, getting angry, feeling betrayed, abandoned and forgotten. She learned then how to dialogue with God, ask the hard questions, cope with unanswered prayer, endure countless sleepless nights filled with fear and anxiety. She had to find God's hesed love in the middle of that mess. 
And although Naomi looked and felt as if her life was being dismantled, God was actually raising her up for a very critical assignment in the kingdom, to love this child. So the birth of Obed is a picture of the gospel, suffering and sacrifice, the joy of renewed life, everything mingled together is the gospel. Now we come to the genealogy, verse 18. And these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hetzron. Hetzron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Shalom, Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Ovid. Ovid fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Aren't you glad there was only 10 generations there? Paul Bigger observes, the 10 generations in the genealogy balance the 10 years in Moab. And Ruth, who is worth more than seven sons of Naomi, marries the seventh generation Boaz. Well, I'm going to end my sermon just quoting Carolyn uh, Curtis James. I, she's just brilliant. And so I'm going to, I think it's appropriate to close with a woman's voice. She says, like Jesus, that's my words, like Jesus, Ruth is wine poured out into Israel's old wineskins. Those old wineskins simply burst under the expanding pressure of their relentless pursuit of the deeper meaning of God's law and her search for more radical ways of loving him. Ruth is a breath of fresh air in a world where good is good enough and God's people settle for small visions of themselves. Her courageous action says seismic tremors rippling through ancient Bethlehem in every episode. She's making sacrifices and shining the bright light of the gospel into the dark world where the judges ruled. And the results are transformational. Naomi's broken down life is recharged. Boaz awakens to an expanded vista of how much more a can and should be and how much he should do for others with the undeserved advantages and the blessings God has given him. He and Ruth forge an alliance that gives us a rare Old Testament glimpse of the blessed alliances as male and female partner in a holy cause. And both thrive as the Lord's image bearers and accomplish more together than either of them could have done separately. In the end, there is deep respect, mutual submission, and a powerful part partnership that rocks the community, multiplies Hesed so that the injustices toward at least one widow are stopped. A family is saved. Hesed spreads like wildfire from the Bethlehem Highway to the fields of Boaz at the threshing floor, past the cities, into the small veins of a new baby boy. That's called redemption. So, what happens when a woman takes the initiative and men respond? Does the earth spin off its orbit? Do the foundations of human society, as God designed them, begin to crumble? Does a man grow stronger or weaker when he encounters a strong woman like Ruth? Is his manhood diminished? Well, judging from Boaz, it can mean the difference between a good man becoming a great man. Boaz enters the story as a man of valor who deserves her admiration and respect. 
After joining forces with Ruth, he stands taller. And he exits as the great-grandfather of King David and the forerunner of Jesus. May God bless us to become holy alliances for redemption. And before we go to communion, I thought it'd be appropriate. I want to thank all the women in my life. Um, I'm so grateful for the alliances we have. And as I've gotten older, I appreciate it more because I could do so much less. <laughs> and uh, you know who you are. I mean, from the front office to my own daughter, um, to poets, to language scholars, to people that keep me straight. It is a heavenly alliance. Now receive this benediction. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, because you were precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I've given my only begotten son in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name.